0: Up next on Upstate's HealthLink on air, a doctor of pharmacy explains what you need to know about the new shingles vaccine.
1: It has an extremely high efficacy rate for preventing shingles, up to um, 90 to 99%. A
0: psychologist explores the prevalence of depression in people who are diagnosed with cancer.
2: On average, about two to three out of ten persons diagnosed with cancer. Uh, will experience these symptoms.
0: And a pair of professional caregivers share their advice about exercising compassion without becoming fatigued. It's really
3: a sense of I'm running out of my resilience. So it gets harder and harder to get out of bed in the morning, even if you have something that you're passionate
0: about that you're doing. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk about how people with a cancer diagnosis are at greater risk for depression. Then we'll hear how professional caregivers can maintain their compassion without becoming fatigued. But first, what's important to know about the new shingles vaccine? The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends healthy adults age 50 and older should be vaccinated against shingles, and there's a new vaccine available. Here to help us understand the shingles vaccine is Upstate Pharmacist Ali Scramenti. She's a pharmacist who's doing additional training in geriatrics. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Well, I'd like to first ask you to explain what shingles is and how it's related to chickenpox.
1: Sure. So... Um The virus that causes chicken pox, or also known as uh, varicella zoster virus, can actually remain latent in your nerve fibers, and then that later in life can reactivate as the zoster virus, or as we know it, shingles. Um, And when we get shingles, we get this painful kind of red, tingly rash um, that really is very irritating to the body surface and That is how um, the two are related. So, am I at risk if I had chickenpox as a child? Yeah, if you had chickenpox as a child, or even if you don't know if you had it, you might still be at risk um, for developing uh, shingles later in life. But if I never had chickenpox? If you never had chickenpox, um, you would be less at risk, but there's still a chance that the virus... That I did have it and it was mild or something.
0: Okay, so everybody's recommended 50 and over, I think they say, right? Um,
1: Is shingles contagious? Shingles can be contagious if the vesicles um, pop open and there's kind of um, contamination that way, but not particularly because it is a virus. Um, So you might have some sort of like superimposed bacterial infection, but not particularly.
0: And do we know what makes this uh, chickenpox or varicella zoster, what makes it reactivate?
1: So we're not exactly sure um, why it reactivates. However, as we get older, our immunity towards varicella starts to decrease. Um, also, we might have other medical conditions or be on other medications that suppress our immune system or our ability to fight off infections. So that is when um, we can be susceptible for shingles.
0: So those people may be would be at higher risk right. for re- or getting it, developing it or whatever. Now, um, I read something about post
1: herpetic neuralgia. What is that? Right. So that is the most common complication of the shingles virus and actually basically at the site where you develop the rash, which is typically on the trunk of your body, um, you have this neuralgia or neuropathy um, tingling and pain at the rash site, even though the rash has started to heal or it might be completely healed it's actually just nerve damage at the site um, that leaves this kind of lasting tingling numbness feeling
0: wow that would be irritating to have to have as a leftover right yeah wow so
1: luckily um you know if you are quick enough and act quick enough um when you do first develop shingles hopefully you can minimize your complications from the virus um however there is still that possibility um, of having that complication.
0: All right. Well, let's talk about how a person can protect himself or herself from this happening.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so like you said, the CDC now recommends um, healthy adults ages 50 years and older to get um, the Shingrix vaccine. That's the new preferred vaccine on the market. And that would be even if you already had the Zostavax shot um, previously.
0: So Zostavax, mm-hmm. that was a vaccine that's been available for shingles um, a few years?
1: Yeah, Okay. Um, probably. I'm not exactly sure at the time, but five, 10 years it's been okay. available. Um, and that used to be the preferred one, um, but now Shingrix, which is now a two-dose series. So you can get the first dose today, and then two to six months later, you'll get the second dose. Um, and it has an extremely high efficacy rate or um, for preventing shingles up to um, 90 to 99%. Um, and that's... Again, even if you had shingles before, and that was in um, healthy adults. So anyone over 50 is
0: there or any, anyone who's healthy over 50. Mm-hmm. So who, who would not um, get a shingles vaccine?
1: So the um, contraindications for the Shingrix vaccine um, are pretty limited. However, it's still being studied in patients that do have um, immunosuppressing conditions. However, it is recommended still for patients that are immunosuppressed. Um, However, if you're taking any medications or um, receiving any chemotherapies or things like that, there's always you know, stipulations to that. So you would have to check with your doctor, um, in comparison to Zostavax, which is not recommended for patients that are, um, immunosuppressed or have a weakened immune system. Shingrix is likely to be, um, effective in these patients.
0: Okay. And again, it's the two, it's two shots. Exactly. uh, Two to six months apart. Yep. Um, now what's the difference between Shingrix
1: and Zostavax? Yeah. So, um, Zostavax the old vaccine was a live vaccine so you just got one dose of it um, subcutaneously and that was it and it had about a 70% efficacy and then that actually um, weaned over time so as you got older the efficacy of the vaccine actually decreased uh, which is something that we would not like to see in comparison Shingrix Um, is an inactive vaccine it's actually um, a protein and basically an immune booster that are mixed together um, and it's administered as that two dose shot right into your muscle Um, it's again not a live vaccine and it has about uh, 90 to 99 percent efficacy
0: you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Ali Scrimenti, a pharmacist at Upstate who is completing her second year of a residency specializing in geriatrics. And we're talking about the new shingles vaccine. So, um, so this newer one seems to be a lot more effective mm-hmm. for a longer period of time. Um, So you don't, at this point, it's not recommended to get it more than once. I mean, you get the two series and then then you're done.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: Um, Are there any side effects to be aware of?
1: So similar to other vaccines, um, when you first get the shot, you might experience some mild soreness or redness at the site. Um, Some patients did experience a little bit of... um, upset stomach or nausea however the symptoms typically resolved over two to three days Um, if you do experience like an allergic reaction or anything serious definitely um, see a healthcare provider and you have to report it for the um, FDA reporting Um, so your pharmacist your local pharmacist can help you with that as well as your physician if something were to happen but in the um, studies for the vaccine there was no serious um, events that happened
0: okay Now, this being a new vaccine, is it covered? Do do health insurances pay for it? Is it covered through Medicare, say?
1: So since it is the new and the recommended um, shingles vaccine, it is covered by Medicare, Medicaid, um, your private health insurance. However, every plan differs. So there may be a copay depending on what kind of health insurance plan you have. Um, So I usually just tell patients to call their insurance company just to see what their copay would be for the vaccine.
0: Now, what about the availability? Because mm-hmm. um, I think there's some shortages, right? Um, right. That are
1: yeah. So there is um, a national back order for the vaccine, unfortunately. Um, however. Since that was more in the beginning part of 2018, more pharmacies and doctor's offices are um, getting shipments of the vaccine in. So what I've been telling patients is to just call your local pharmacy um, and see, you know, how much of the vaccine they have. If you can get on a waiting list, if they don't have any, um, just to get a timeline. We don't want anyone to, you know, to go to the pharmacy and they not have the vaccine. So just a quick call, see if they have it, um, get on a list and try to do that as soon as possible um, now that it is the recommended vaccine.
0: So let me, uh, the shingrix, if it's it's a protein vaccine, mm-hmm. what does that protein do in the body once it's in there? What does it, um, does it go find the varicella zoster and just
1: something like that um it can get pretty intricate but basically since it's the protein and the immune booster they both work together um to fight off the virus in the body and just prevent um any reoccurrences of the virus reactivating
0: okay um, it can. This is this being flu season. A lot of people are kind of geared up to go get their flu shot. Is this something that you can get, you know, at your doctor's office when you go to get the flu shot, or?
1: Yep, you can get it um, alongside with the flu shot. Just get, you know, the flu shot in one arm, the Shingrix in the other arm. Um, You could also get the pneumonia shot along with this. Um, Since it is a new vaccine, they're still looking into, you know, all of the vaccines that are available that you can get with that. But so far, the CDC has said flu and pneumonia are okay with the Shingrix.
0: Is there a group of people that most urgently
1: um, need to get this? Um, most urgently, really not, not particularly if you just had the shingles, they do recommend that you wait until the rash, um, heals, you know, the blisters are gone and, I would say even, you know, for at least a month after that period. And that's what the waiting period that is recommended is um, one to two months before you get the vaccine. But again, even if you had the shingles, um, if you're if you don't really know if you've had the chicken pox when you were little, um, go ahead and get the vaccine. Um, really anyone and it's recommended for now. So
0: if I remember correctly, when you had when chicken pox when I was little, um, you were said if you had it you wouldn't get it again. You'd be immune from getting chicken pox again, but I guess we didn't know about shingles
1: at that right. time, right? <laughs> so um, that's actually a good point. So basically it is the same virus. Um, so I guess that's true. You won't get chickenpox chicken again, but, but you are at risk for shingles. So that's what <laughs> they left out. <laughs> and then if
0: you develop shingles, um, I, I didn't realize you can have it again and again.
1: Yeah, so unfortunately, again, it just kind of remains in that nerve fiber. Um, But with the, you know, efficacy of the new vaccine, hopefully it can prevent up to, you know, 99% of those reoccurrences. So that's what we're looking for um, since it's always going to be there.
0: So people who hear this who've already dealt with shingles mm-hmm. should definitely go out and, and look at getting a vaccination. Yeah,
1: I would say so because they know firsthand how painful the um, rash is to begin with. So I'm sure nobody wants to go through that again.
0: All right. Well, this is very good information. I appreciate you coming and sounding the, the warning so people know to go look into this. My guest has been Upstate Pharmacist Ali Scramenti. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, depression among people with cancer on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Does depression differ in people who have a cancer diagnosis? And what about in loved ones who are caring for someone with cancer? Today we'll talk with the primary psychologist at the Upstate Cancer Center. His name is Dr. Jeffrey Schweitzer, and he's a licensed clinical psychologist within the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Upstate Medical University. And he's here in the studio with me today. Thank you for being here.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me, Amber, and thank you, everyone, for listening today. Uh, Today, I want to talk about cancer-related depression, and I really want to hit on six main points. Uh, The first is that persons with cancer are at a higher risk for depression. Second...
0: Wait, they are. Let me interrupt you on on those. uh So they they are. If you get a diagnosis of cancer, your chances of developing depression are higher?
2: Yes, higher than the the general population, uh, persons not diagnosed with cancer.
0: Is it a depression that's um, different in some way from depression, just regular depression?
2: Um, It's not different. Uh, The symptoms are the same. Um, So that's a a good place to start is, you know, when we say depression, what do we mean by that? So what I mean specifically is an episode of major depression, um, also referred to as major depressive disorder. Okay. In order to be diagnosed with major depressive disorder, someone needs to exhibit five or more of these symptoms uh, most of the day, most days, over a, at least a two week period. So they need to be experiencing a depressed mood or decreased pleasure or interest in most of the activities. Uh, for most of the day, nearly every day, that they previously took interest in, that they previously enjoyed, like hiking, kayaking, um, a depressed person might come in and say, "You know, I used to love to do those things, but I just don't love to do it anymore. You know, I I have scant motivation even to to get up and make a meal for myself."
0: So it's way beyond just feeling sad.
2: Yes, uh, much different than sadness. Okay, um, and. It is it is uh, common uh, for persons diagnosed with cancer to be uh, to experience depression to be diagnosed with a major depressive disorder. Um, on average, about two to three out of ten persons diagnosed with cancer uh, will experience these symptoms.
0: Huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yes. So. Um those who don't experience these, what, if, what, if, what do they know that we can learn from? How do you get through cancer without a depressive episode?
2: Well, um, I, I, so for the, the majority of people, uh, they do get do get through this you know, really stressful and emotionally laden experience uh, without uh, becoming depressed. That being said, It's very common for these other folks to experience sadness and dysphoria. Um, You know, that's something that they may experience for minutes, hours, um, or episodically over the course of days and weeks. Uh, It's a very normal reaction to the diagnosis of cancer, which for many people represents a a mortal threat. Um, Beyond that, uh, another very common reaction is is almost a, a grief response. Um, a grief response that looks very much like depression, uh, in that there's shock and disbelief initially. Um, In some cases, denial, um, which I I will add can be very adaptive because it gives folks time to to process the reality of this medical situation. Um, Also, they can experience sadness and crying, in some cases, despair, sleep problems, loss of appetite, fear nervousness worry about the future um, even feelings of guilt you know for example if someone you know has the role of provider for their family and they're diagnosed with cancer knowing that they're going to have to be engaging in treatment and could not necessarily go to work that could bring on feelings of guilt Um, so putting all these things together uh, that comprises a, a grief reaction you know which is for most a, a matter of course and the emotional adjustment to a diagnosis like this.
0: And we're talking about the person who gets the diagnosis, but some of what you said it strikes me that it could apply to the spouse or partner or child. or.
2: Yes, um, absolutely. So uh, a diagnosis of cancer affects the whole family, not just the person diagnosed. Uh, there are a couple of, of studies out there Um, that, you know, looked more closely at this, particularly with female partners of men diagnosed with prostate cancer. And what they found is that uh, the the female partners or spouses actually experience more distress than the men themselves. Uh, In some cases, uh, twice the rate of major depressive disorder, which which we've talked about or generalized anxiety disorder as compared to community counterparts in the general population. Uh, 36% of these women reported mild to moderate anxiety. Um, So it is important also to to focus on how partners and and spouses are responding to the diagnosis, how they're coping with it, uh, because they too need support. Now, uh, another study showed that the best way to buffer against uh, depression and, and poor emotional adjustment in families is open and direct emotional communication and also problem solving, particularly in the early stages of diagnosis and treatment. Um, You know, so for family members, uh, not just to be talking about the facts of of the diagnosis, what they heard from the doctors, but also how they're feeling about all that, you know, that, that they're feeling scared perhaps, sad, even angry about the circumstances. Just for them to be able to openly communicate about those things can prevent that from turning into a depression, turning into anxiety. Uh, isolating family members from one another. And it can also really empower them uh, to work together to problem solve through the myriad of challenges that are likely to arise.
0: Let me ask you, because you mentioned a lot of the sort of feelings a person might have, is it common to have um, a day where you feel nothing but anger about the situation, but then another day where You're not angry. You're
2: you're sad. Yes. Does it vacillate between? It it, it does. It does, Uh, and and that tends to be more typical of the grief response that we were talking about earlier. One way that I uh, differentiate uh, a grief response from uh, more of a a depressive response or or major depressive disorder is that grief tends to come in waves. Um, You know, the listeners out out there if, if you've ever lost someone I, I think you can identify with what I'm saying you know that a common phrase is you have your good days and you have your bad days and the same that can hold true with the, the cancer diagnosis is it can come in waves whereas with someone who is depressed they're feeling that way most of the day every day and it, it's just not going away
0: all right, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Jeffrey Schweitzer. He's the primary psychologist at the Upstate Cancer Center, and we're talking about depression uh, in cancer. So, um, how do you go about treating depression in someone who has cancer? Is it treated differently than someone who does not have cancer?
2: Uh, it is. Mostly not treated differently. Um, the one one caveat is that uh, if if the doctor and and person decide to go the course of pharmacotherapy uh, like through a an antidepressant, depression, mm-hmm. uh, then you know there are some that may be indicated depending on the person's type of cancer and the kind of cancer treatment that they're receiving because uh, it can kind of work against the the effectiveness of okay. the treatment. Uh, particularly with breast cancer. So always, always important to have that conversation with your physician Mm -hmm. or oncologist.
0: Well, let's talk about the impact of depression on cancer. Sure. Um, What do do you see with, is there an effect?
2: Yes. um, You know, there are very significant effects. um, First, in terms of deterioration of quality of life, you know, which you can probably imagine as I described the, the symptoms, uh, one of which is anhedonia or the loss of pleasure and the, the things that mm-hmm. one previously took pleasure in. Um, so with that, there's a, a decrease in mood and also that someone who's depressed is less likely to engage in those kinds of activities because of the, the waning motivation. Um, so that can further uh, depress the mood, and also detract from quality of life. Um, also, we find that there tends to be a, a reduced adherence to treatment um, for a, a similar reason, because there's a, a low motivation. In some cases, uh, people may be experiencing anxiety in combination with the depressed mood, uh, which kind of turns up the, the volume on the, the fear response and and some of the, the worried thoughts they may have about treatment and also just the, the general distress one may experience from treatment side effects um, and not wanting to, to feel any worse. Um, also more recently, you know, there's a body of research that's showing that folks demonstrate a poorer response to treatment. You know, why that is, we we don't know right so now. So if
0: you're depressed mm-hmm. and um and un- untreated for the depression, I assume, if, if you're really yes. suffering from depression and not really um, getting relief in any way, it can have an impact on the care you're getting or how well it works for yes. your cancer.
2: How well it wow. works, for sure. Um, you know, there are systematic studies out there that compare uh, a group with depression versus a control group without depression and uh, demonstrate a poor response with the depressed group.
0: Does that surprise you at all? Uh,
2: it, it doesn't. Um, it, it does make sense in terms of uh, the behavioral consequences that we just discussed. You know, I, I am familiar with the pattern of you know, depressed people um, you know, really getting shut down. So it makes sense. They would be less likely to, to show up for treatment or show up at, consistently for treatment. Um, but it, it does seem like there may be a, a biochemical component, you know, some, some kind of physiological component uh, that may be affecting these outcomes as well. Um, relatedly, other studies are, are showing that uh, depressed folks have elevated mortality um, that's predicted by a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. And also you know, these folks are showing uh, poor adjustment overall and are at higher risk for suicide.
0: Wow. Well, what advice, um, aside from medication, we mentioned that a little bit, but what advice do you have for, for what can be done to ease depression during cancer, it, whether in the patient or the caregivers?
2: Sure. And I think it, it all starts with your support network. Um There's a whole other body of research that shows that, that having, um, having quality supports, uh, during illness, during cancer specifically helps the overall adjustment. You know, it can help from a medical standpoint. It can help from a psychological standpoint. Um, and you know, kind of similar to, to your question before it's not exactly clear why that is, but we know that it works. So I encourage the listeners stay connected to your supports.: And that
0: would be your family, your friends, yes, your neighbors.
2: Exactly. Um,
0: but does that extend to caregivers like yourself? I mean, if you have a therapist or you have a care team that you see regularly for your cancer care, those people are part of your support too, right?
2: Absolutely. Yes. And important to also rely on your, your treat, your team, um, you know your Medical doctors, your your primary care physician, your oncologist, you know all all people who are involved in your medical care. Um, to talk with them also about any emotional symptoms, any psychological symptoms, you know how how you're experiencing the diagnosis, and if you're finding that it's it's too overwhelming, it's too much. You know you're you're engaging in that open. Emotional communication with family, friends, community, you're actively problem solving with them and your doctors, and you're still feeling down, uh, then it may be time uh, to talk with someone like myself.
0: Okay. Where do you start the conversation? How do you, how do you begin a relationship with someone who's just received a cancer diagnosis? Uh,
2: I always start by, by normalizing what they're experiencing. I I start by acknowledging that, at best, cancer is tremendously stressful, not just for you, but for your your family, your loved ones. And at worst, it can be life-threatening, life-altering, traumatic. And um, everyone falls somewhere on the spectrum. And... uh, that i I take for granted that they have a a number of strengths and coping skills it's important for me to know that it's important for me to know what is working and also to to understand better you know what's what's not working you know i'm there there are some limitations that brought you here to me today Mm -hmm. Um, so my goal is to understand not just your, your problems, but understand your strengths too, understand you as a person, and understand the, the context in which you're experiencing these symptoms. So we can work together as a, a team to get you some relief and uh, a feeling of, of well-being.
0: Wow. Well, it's good to know that this is uh, available here at the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm glad to know that you uh, are willing to come in and talk about this as well.
2: Sure. We're located on the the third floor of the Cancer Center in the multidisciplinary suite. Um, And uh, if anyone would be interested in coming in for a a conversation, a consultation about what they're experiencing, uh, we can be contacted at 315-464-3510 and just express that you'd like to meet with Dr. Schweitzer, and typically I could get you in with one to two within one to two weeks.
0: Wonderful, Good to know. My guest has been the Upstate Cancer Center's licensed clinical psychologist Dr. Jeffrey Schweitzer. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, Health Link on Air. Next up, compassion without fatigue. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you're in the position of taking care of someone, compassion is most likely part of the care you provide. You may already realize that this can be a draining position to be in. There are some practical strategies for building your resilience, and with me in the studio to talk about these strategies are Andrea Dalton and Reverend Roxanne Pendleton. They're from the Center for Trauma-Informed Innovation at the Truman Medical Centers in Kansas City, Missouri, and they're in Syracuse to provide training on this subject at Upstate. Thank you both for being here. Thank Thank you. you for having us. You talk about secondary trauma and fatigue and burnout, so let's start by defining what each of those is.
4: So secondary trauma basically is when you hear about or you witness a trauma that's happening to someone else or has happened to someone else. And you yourself feel the effects of that. Um, You have a traumatic response to that. Um, What happens with that is your fight, flight, or freeze response is activated. And um, you go into, sometimes you have pretty significant effects of secondary trauma, and sometimes they're more mild. So it can be kind of a continuum. And sometimes you don't notice right away that you're having a secondary trauma experience because you continue to do whatever you're doing to help the people that you're working with. And... Um, when you get in that kind of mode uh, where you're really focused on giving back to other people, uh, you may not notice until you finally take a break that you're having a secondary trauma kind of experience.
0: So I imagine people working in a hospital, I'm certainly like the emergency department or the trauma unit. Um, probably see a lot of things like that that they could be affected by on a daily basis.
4: Absolutely. I think that's um, a really, really common experience for people that work in especially emergency care. Uh, My background is in mental health treatment and Uh, We saw that, you know, on a daily basis, people telling us stories of things that had happened to them. And so secondary trauma happens really frequently. Uh, Compassion fatigue takes a little bit longer to build up. It's more, uh, I mean, it's called compassion fatigue. So it's about becoming tired from that caregiving work that you do in whatever capacity that is, whether you're a physician or a nurse or a a mental health provider, or even if you're just caring for your family member who might be ill or... um, any of those kind of other day-to-day caregiving things that many of us do. And compassion fatigue has many things that can contribute to it, secondary trauma being one of them. Um, But other things that contribute to compassion fatigue are uh, just if you have your own personal illness going on or other stressors happening in your life, um, your background, the way that you were raised, the things that – our priorities for you in what you do. Many of us have been raised from an early age to take care of others before we take care of ourselves. And what that means for a lot of us then is that we don't ever take care of ourselves because we're spending our time and energy caring for other people.
0: So compassion fatigue is much more than just having, feeling worn out at the end of a day when you've had a very busy day. It's yeah, more than that.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's, it usually takes some time to build up. Okay. Yeah, and it has specific symptoms including
3: the weariness. Um, It's really a sense of I'm running out of my resilience so it gets harder and harder to get out of bed in the morning even if you have something that you're passionate about that you're doing. Compassion fatigue also impacts people who care for animals, people who are trying to save the environment, any kind of activist, anyone who is Uh, passionately committed to a cause working very 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 hard and working long hours and juggling many things um, can develop compassion fatigue and in fact one of the things we say is it's normal compassion fatigue is a normal experience of the chronic stress that occurs for those of us who are in caring professions or who are caring for people in our personal life or both it is normal If you don't experience it, we want to talk to you because pretty much everyone, (laughs) everyone that we've ever met and the research shows that it's just absolutely normal. Now, some people um, keep pushing through and don't acknowledge it. And then that's when you become, um, well, the danger becomes then that you could head into burnout. That's what I was going to ask.
0: Does it lead to burnout? it It can. So
3: it's one of the paths into burnout. So burnout Uh, is different than secondary trauma. It's different than compassion fatigue. Burnout um, is really marked by um, an absence of compassion. While while you have compassion fatigue, you might be tired, but you still have compassion. While you have an experience of secondary trauma, you can still have compassion. But by the time you get to burnout, it's uh, almost as though you go numb or you become cynical. And while secondary trauma primarily impacts the body via the stress response, and, com- and compassion fatigue impacts the body in terms of weariness as well as personal function, burnout impacts everything. Your, your body, your work relationships, your personal relationships, your life in every aspect. And it becomes very dangerous um, in a sense for those of us who are um, in helping professions because you can start to make mistakes. So, or you can start to, um, you know, if you're completely numb or cynical, we work a lot with first responders and one of the things that I think of is say um, an officer comes to the scene and knows that uh, the regulations are you wait you wait for backup before you go in but say that person is so completely burnt out that they think uh what does that matter mm-hmm. and that person goes on and goes in well that person could be harmed or could harm others because um there's not that backup there so it's about your decision making processes become uh impacted and burnout, like Andrea said, secondary trauma occurs pretty quickly when you witness the trauma or hear about the trauma. Compassion fatigue builds up over time. Burnout even takes a longer time. And likewise, it seems to take a longer time to heal. Mm-hmm. You can heal from all of them. but The path mm-hmm. to healing is different.
0: This sounds like it's dangerous for the people you're trying to take care of. As well as yourself, correct? Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, are there physical um, manifestations on your personal health if you're suffering from compassion fatigue or burnout?
4: Yeah, I think uh, just like with any stressful situation, uh, those those hormones that are released in your body, the um, you know things like cortisol which people talk about a lot as you know one of the important things uh, to note about stress the stress response in the body. Um, it does have an impact on your physical health, on your mental health and well-being and um, really I mean doing something to address it is of utmost importance so that you don't end up in burnout. You don't end up in that state where you may be causing continued harm to other people or to yourself.
3: Yeah, you could actually pretty easily Google um, the signs and symptoms of burnout and compassion fatigue and secondary trauma and and look at the similarities and differences. I think the thing that's important uh, when I look at this continuum, if you will, is the way that chronic um, stress over time impacts uh, lifetime well-being um, and it becomes toxic. And so what happens is systemically we become inflamed. And, uh, there's a lot of talk about, um, mental illness recently and mental illness is a situation where in many cases, parts of the brain are inflamed. Other parts of the brain are shut down and, um, the hormones of stress wreak havoc. If it wreaks havoc in the brain, you might have suicidality. If it wreaks havoc in the liver, you might have an issue there. If it wreaks Mm -hmm. havoc in the heart, you might have heart disease, but those stress hormones do um, impact the body in ways that are
0: measurable and and scientifically researched.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Is there a way to predict which person is most at risk for compassion fatigue? Or that's a
4: good question. Or are there, I red think there flags? are a lot of the, there, there are a are lot of risk flags. factors, and there are red flags. <laughs> yeah. um, like I was talking about before, that sense of other directedness. You know, if you have that from a very early age, that you take care of others before you take care of yourself. Um, so there's, there's that, and that comes from cultural background, gender expectations, social expectations, just within a family, um, religious expectations. I think play a role in that too. Uh, so that's definitely a, a risk factor for compassion fatigue. There's um, other
3: directedness. There's um, a some some people are just one of their strengths is responsibility. And so they are those ones who are always kind of coming in to save the day and, and pick me. up the slack. And Andrea has that <laughs> as a strength. Uh, the dark side of that is if, if you overuse it, uh, you develop a condition that she calls.
4: Yes disease. disease.
5: Yeah. You say, yes, you to say yes to
4: everything. And then you even don't, when you're even when you can't. Worn even out. when you don't have the physical or mental capacity yep. to take care of it anymore. So there's
3: that. There's um, Some people tend to minimize traumatic events. So when something happens to them, they're like, oh, I'm fine. Just fine. Everything's fine. And they just push through. Um, there are people who have, like Andrea mentioned, their own um, physical illness, or maybe they've, like, I don't know, been in an accident, had a surgery, and so then they're tired mm-hmm. and hurting on top of that. People with a history of trauma uh, that is unresolved. Mm-hmm. Um, people who have secondary trauma day in and day out, day in and day out, and some jobs. Include just, uh, exposure mm-hmm. to that.
4: It's just part of it. Um, I think also limited resources. Yeah, if you, that's a big one. If you are in a situation where, you know, you maybe you're working three jobs in order to make ends meet, you may not have the... When are you going to exercise? You, right. You may not have the time to do those, <laughs> right. those things that everybody tells you you should do to take care of yourself. Um, but it could also be as simple as just not having access to something that you really... Uh, have found to be fulfilling for you, or um, like maybe yoga, doing yoga is your thing, and you live in a really small town, and there's one yoga studio, and it's 20 miles away, and it's only open from nine to three, and you work from eight to five. Uh, you know, not having access to or those you, things that. Or if you're a new mom you you yeah. new dead And you used to run every night after work. But now you have
3: a baby. And so you have to come home and take care of the baby. And so people go through seasons in their life where they're more, I think, susceptible mm-hmm. to compassion fatigue. And I would say parents of young children, you know,
4: might be in that boat. Definitely. They're sure. tired. They're sleep deprived. Um, so there's also the, the sandwich generation mm-hmm. uh, where people are taking care of their children who are still at home. But then they're mm-hmm. also taking care of their aging parents. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another time where people are maybe more susceptible to compassion fatigue? I just feel like if we're not intentional about
3: our self-care and our self-compassion, if we're not really mindful and thoughtful, then we will fall into compassion fatigue if we're caring for others. Mm -hmm.
0: Even if we can't, even if we know we can't get to the gym or do the run or whatever, just sort of realizing that And maybe reminding ourselves, we're not going to have an infant forever. Right. Things are going to change as, right? Yes, and we like to teach what we call micro practices
3: of self-care. Going to the gym to work out is more of a macro practice, right? It takes um, the time to get there, the time to be there, and the time to come back. And that takes time that a lot of people don't have. We try to teach uh, tools and practices that you can do anywhere, anytime, With very little, uh, for example, breathing practices are our favorite things to teach because you always have your breath. And these things you can do for 30 seconds to 3 minutes wherever you are, and those can build your resilience.
0: Mm -hmm. You mentioned um, that people can recover from this. How do you rebuild compassion in a caregiver who's become burned out? And this could be a professional caregiver or a person at home Mm -hmm. taking care of young children or older parents. Mm -hmm. How do you rebuild it once you've? Yeah,
4: that's a really good question. Uh, And I think it's different for every person, too. Um, There are lots of different ways that you can approach that. One is people change their profession or they change their job sometimes uh, in order to rebuild from that burnout that they experience. That was one thing that I have done personally. Um, When I got to a point of burnout, I did whatever I could to find a different place to work. And I was still doing the same work, but in a different place. And that actually for me, was really effective.
3: It was effective though because I think having heard a little bit of your story, the new place that you went to work had better supports for you. Oh, as an absolutely!
4: So it's yeah. not just
3: about changing jobs. If you go from one job that has no support for you to another job that has no support for you,
4: you're still going to be burned out. You're still going to be burned
3: out. But if you move to a job like Andrea did, where she had a supervisor who was more supportive, mm-hmm. she had um, there were just systems in place yeah. to help people be more balanced and healthy. So changing jobs is one way. Another way is um, well. But oftentimes people who are burnout need some time off. Mm-hmm. Like, they need to take some of those, I don't know, 400 hours of vacation time that, that they haven't taken up, yet, right. right? And do some
4: meaningful work. <laughs> meaningful
5: investment in, investment, in self, yeah. self-healing. Like, yeah. work with
3: a counselor, a therapist, a coach, a pastor. You know, um, invest in what can I do not just to heal now but protect myself in the future. So they have mm-hmm. to kind of design their life in such a way that it becomes um, – the kind of place they don't wanna run screaming from. Like they have to design a life they don't want to escape, Mm -hmm. right, so they have to invest in personal healing, invest in designing their life in a different way, and some people uh, recover from burnout, they stay in their current job, but they get involved in something new and exciting for them, so they might like, if they have that flexibility and a boss who understands, they can uh, let go of these projects, work on this new project where they have to like learn some new things and and do something that energizes them because mm-hmm. you know bringing that vitality back into their uh, into their life will help heal burnout too. Mm-hmm.
4: Well, and yes. I think doing that from a recognition of what your strengths are yeah. too. Oh yes. Um, We've done some work with like Strength finder and Strength scope and those kinds of things. And there's really great research that shows when you work from your strengths, that is protective against burnout. Uh, but I think it can also help you with that healing process, too. Like if you do kind of change the direction of your position or you're, um, you know, you're allowed to take on some different duties or tasks. And if those align with your strengths, you are much more likely to feel fulfilled again the work that you're doing and that is protective and healing at the same time
0: well very good thank you so much for this information i appreciate both of you being here my guests have been andrea dalton and the reverend roxanne pendleton they're from the center for trauma-informed innovation at the truman medical centers in kansas city missouri i'm amber smith for upstate's podcast and talk show HealthLink on air And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
5: Nursing students and medical students learn how to deliver bad news. They are told to choose their words carefully, to recognize that each patient processes the news differently. Sarah Perkle-Hughes, who teaches literature at Middle Georgia State U., gives us a wonderful example of this in her essay, When the Doctor Says Cancer. You hear not cancer. Funny how the brain rejects the word cancer, two syllables that can change the trajectory of your life so much that your brain inserts a third to negate the whole meaning. Minutes later, when the doctor uses words like oncologist, chemotherapy, mastectomy, you begin to doubt the initial relief you felt at not cancer. She hands you a pamphlet entitled, Coping with Breast Cancer. The words sit in a row like birds on a telephone wire, visible but utterly out of reach. You say, wait, so it is cancer? And the doctor nods, yes, it is cancer. You have cancer. It is aggressive. Treatment must begin immediately. You feel sorry for her. It's unfair, she must convince you that the biopsy results were the worst case scenario. Still, you don't believe her. That night when you try saying, I have cancer to your mother, it sounds like a lie. You have spent years studying English, years teaching it, but I have cancer is a sentence your brain does not comprehend, a sentence that belongs to someone else. But now you sit on the exam table staring at the hot pink laces in your new sneakers The doctor hands you a box of Kleenex before walking out of the room as if to say you should be crying right now. You hold the tissues the way a child holds a box of frozen waffles for her mother, who has left the kitchen, wondering when she's coming back. The nurse, who has been in the room the whole time, pats your shoulder and says, you're young, but you're not that young. You push the Kleenex box into the nurse's hands. She sets it on the counter and says she's going to give you a minute to process. The door closes with a soft clunk. Your wilted husband stumbles toward you from the corner where he's been slumped like a rain-soaked scarecrow. He takes you in his arms. He cries into your neck. You rub his back, tell him to breathe. You murmur, since when was 33 not that young? Your husband chuckles. Geez, that would be the one thing you heard. He straightens up, wipes his eyes. Seriously, you say, crossing your arms. I had ice cream for supper last night. Would a not-that-young person do that? Your husband laughs again, not because it's especially funny, but because after 15 years together, he knows what you need to hear.
0: This has been Upstate's health link on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, how you can get screened for lung cancer. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org, or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanking you for listening.